Hello everyone, it's October 6th, 2020. This week we take a look at Tian-11, the Chinese orbiter slash lander that also takes selfies in deep space. It's a very ambitious mission when it's your first time visit to the Red Planet, so let's get into the details and go through some space pics and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 279 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So before we get started on the show today, did you guys hear that Dragon for Demo 1, it was named Endurance. They're using the same vehicle for the Demo 2 mission, uh, but this time it's been named Resilience. I did not hear that. So the first vehicle that actually flew was named, that was um, Endeavor. Is, is that what Oh, you Endeavor. Meant? That's right. Oh, right. Endeavor and Resilience together become Endurance, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so they're just going to rename it and refly it. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so because this was Demo 2 that most recently flew, right? That was Demo mm-hmm. 2. That was the Demo 2. Yeah, demo 1 was uncrewed. Right. Th- since this isn't Demo 2, the last one was Demo 2. This is Crew 1 is mm-hmm. what it is. So Crew 1 is resilient. And they're going to fly that same vehicle, like the very same one that they just previously flew? I, well, if they're naming it something different, I guess not. Let's see. So that was uh, Dragon C206. Because I got to say, I have a philosophical problem with <laughs> just renaming the same physical vessel. <laughs> it, I mean, it does seem kind of wrong unless it's like, you know, commandeered by some other rogue nation or something. Then, they, you know, you can rename it whatever you want. But... No, no, no th- you're right. Right. This is uh, Dragon C207. And so actually, it's it's probably a good thing that they're not reflying it because there, there was some unexpected wear and tear on... Uh, on Endeavor. So the way that the trunk is mounted, it's got these mounting posts and they had unexpected airflow over those posts. And that resulted in um, deeper than expected erosion. It's not a safety issue. You know, it's, it's fine. It's just kind of like this interesting thing where, you know, you can design a spacecraft and do all the analysis that you want, but ultimately you don't know what that spacecraft does until you fly it. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, I, I think I read it. Yeah. An article that talked about that as well as, you know, the parachutes deployed, you know, just slightly outside their kind of window that they wanted it to, like still very safe, but like just a little. So I think time window late. or spatial window? L- a little late. Okay. Temporal window. Yeah. Right, right, right. There's quite a bit of SpaceX news lately, and we haven't been talking about it too much, it, <laughs> it, um, or at least it seems like that, because there's also been a lot of testing down at Boca Chica, and they're, you know, flying uh, starships and blowing them up or whatever. I don't, I don't <laughs> think that they've blown any up. Well, yeah, they actually, they have blown up a couple oh, yeah. recently, intentionally. The most, recent, the most recent was an intentional overpressure test, I believe. Right. I, I could be a little behind the times, but yeah. I almost want to start taking bets on who thinks which will fly first. Is it going to be Star Starship or is it going to be New Glenn? Because that's hey, here, here's just... here's a bet I'll give you. I, I bet you Starship's going to fly before Enroll Forty Four gets up off the ground. Maybe that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the most recent? I don't even remember. Now. Is the is the most recent one the fill cable pullout or something? Like they, I, I saw something about one of the one of the umbilicals pulling out or like not falling out but getting pulled out too early mm-hmm. or something i don't know that they keep uh they keep getting down to the point where they fire the um the sparklers the radially outward firing something initiators yeah and and at that point th- those things are are like solid rockets you start them up and you can't start them down da- or you can't shut them down and you have to go out and replace them and mm-hmm. so they've been firing those guys up and then having an issue and go okay i guess we're done <laughs> Oof. but you know safety above uh, above everything else so it's always mm-hmm. it's yeah. always good to to have an abort because that's one problem that you you know 
you didn't encounter during flight. Yeah, Tori Bruno, he, he responds so much about, <laughs> you know, like he does such a good job responding to people on Twitter. And I just remember one person was kind of like, you know, at some point, right, what do you want, perfection? You know, you got to launch mm -hmm. eventually. And he's like, mm -hmm. this is a multi-billion dollar <laughs> you know, spacecraft yeah. that we're mm -hmm. setting up there, satellite that we're setting up there. So let's, uh, we really are going to make sure that we do it right. But at this point, I'm waiting. I just want, I'm going to just assume, I would like to just assume scrub scrubs and then they can just send me a notification if they're actually if it actually flies you know what i mean <laughs> at this point my my expectations are flipped right now there has been a couple of scrubs for some spacex launches and apparently mm -hmm. i think the elon musk is actually going to the cape to you know inspect some equipment have a talk with the ground crew i don't know but i had read an article that made it sound like he's gonna go chew them out because they're not they're like yeah. not you know getting this launch cadence up yeah yeah ground equipment's been a big part of all the latest ones i think or at least most of yeah. them i don't know i can't I, again i can't keep track of exactly mm -hmm. there's there's a number of missions that are getting scrubbed over and over again but enroll 44 is kind of uh, the most notable i would say <laughs> black cloud as my <laughs> uncle would call it So let's talk about Tian One One. Well, it's hard to say. Tian One and then the number one, the Chinese spacecraft. And there's a really recent Twitter selfie that I guess is kind of the impetus for all this because yeah. uh, we get to see shots of a spacecraft in space. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Space. So, um, so there there'll be links in the show notes to a Twitter thread. And yeah, so so basically, to to take a selfie in space, you have to have a camera that's outside of your vehicle, like. You know, the, mm -hmm. in Kerbal Space Program, you can, you know, just press C and suddenly you can see the exterior of your spacecraft. But uh, in in real life, you have to bring some extra hardware along. And so Tianwen-1 actually had a jettisonable camera and it's it's really <laughs> yeah. cool and, and there there's uh -huh. a, a series of images that have been turned into uh in, into a video boy that that was a lot more pedantic than it needed to be there, there's a video <laughs> <laughs> of this thing actually flying <laughs> away from the spacecraft um and it, it's pretty cool it's it's a box with a camera lens on the on the other side and it just you know basically yeah call it in the chat says a free-floating selfie <laughs> stick right exactly um and, and so this little box just gets jettisoned and it doesn't have any attitude control. It just takes a bunch of photos and you just wait until the thing spins around and points at your spacecraft. And so we now have images of this vehicle uh, out in space um, and, and the video of the camera itself getting flung away is uh, oddly satisfying to me. I, I like seeing mm -hmm. things float. I wonder how quickly it was jettisoned, though, because from the Twitter image, it looks very fast, like it was really tumbling and it, and it just shot out. But I don't think that that happened, right? Because, I mean, that seems unnecessarily violent. It wouldn't help with the image quality either, you know? Right, yeah. And, and so that's why my instinct is to call it a series of images uh, rather than a video, because it's it's more like a time lapse than anything else. Yeah, so I, I think, I, if I remember correctly, it was once uh, one shot a second. So it was, okay. a, it was a one hertz frame rate, if you okay. want to think of it, it that way. It is <laughs> the, the video of the camera flying away. Oh, no, no, no. The, the, um, the camera, right, the camera took one, one photo a second, right? But what the, the video that's kind of sped up is the, the look back. Oh, right, right, right. As yeah, it yeah. were. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's the two things to talk about. There was a spacecraft imaging the deployable camera, and that was a nice video of it kind of tumbling away. Kind of reminds mm -hmm. me of all the Hayabusa, you know, mm -hmm. GIFs or, you know, videos of them, you know, dropping all the different things. Mm -hmm. But, um, but then, yeah, then the, because of the much lower rate of 
taking images from the deployable camera. We basically have a couple of just, you know, nice still images though, but like mm -hmm. seeing the whole spacecraft. And you don't have that sense of scale either. Like, you know, you see that and I don't know about you guys, but like I always forget how big <laughs> a lot of these missions are. And so yeah. the, the the things that Andrew Jones tweeted, right, the, the, these images, because he's kind of like the, the, the person for like, you know, <laughs> knowing about what's happening in, in Chinese space uh, in right. the English language world. And right. he's the one who tweeted these, but like, yeah, it doesn't look as big from the deployable camera, but the Tian-11 is a pretty large spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is pretty massive. Um, the whole thing uh, weighs over, it, it masses uh, about five tons. So yeah, it's, it's a, Oof. it's a, <laughs> Hefty boy. So um, th this is actually um, really cool. So it's not China's first Mars activity, I guess, because because mm. they sent instruments on Phobos Grunt. Um, but this is their first actual um, standalone mission. And it, it's also notable because it's the first time that a country it, it's it's the first country first mission that includes um, a rover and an orbiter. Um, mm. Most of the time, the first mission to Mars by by a particular agency is just an orbiter, and then you kind of work your way up. So that that's pretty cool. And so, yeah, it's, it's this pair of, of spacecraft. Technically, I guess you could call it three spacecraft because the lander is a lander and a rover together. Mm -hmm. So um, the orbiter will be used as a comms relay, um, but they're also doing orbital science. Um, they're planning a one-year primary mission, um, and they're going to arrive sometime in February. And it's pretty cool because when you go to Mars, and this isn't, you know, unique to this vehicle. This is kind of a standard thing you have to do. But when you when you go to Mars, your orbital inclination is dictated by the planets. You don't get that much of a choice of what inclination relative to the planet you're gonna have when you arrive. There are some things you can do to to tweak, you know, if you're looking if you're headed towards Mars and you're looking at it, you can change where your um arrival vector is but you know it, it it's a little it's a little more subtle than just uh picking what what angle you're passing mars by on so um the orbital dynamics have gotten them an 11.8 degree initial orbit um so they're going to insert into you know 12 degrees and they're going to capture into a high elliptical orbit. And when they come up to the top of that orbit, they will then do an, uh, a plane change maneuver and get themselves up to uh, 86.9 degrees. And, and, and what I find cool about this is that it's very rare that you see drastic plane change maneuvers like this. It's just so expensive to mm -hmm. do. Um, and you know, when you're going to another planet, that's, that's when it really becomes cheap because you're going to have to spend the same amount of Delta V getting to your final, you know, roughly speaking, getting down to your final orbit. And so if you just, you know, kind of break it into chunks, you can, um, stay in a high orbit and do, um, drastic plane changes for not a lot of, uh, of fuel. So after their initial orbit, they will then um, descend to a, a an elliptical, um, but you know, so sort of this high elliptical um, reconnaissance orbit. 
So they're going to um, go to an Appleian of uh, 60,000 kilometers, um, which is a two-day period, uh, roughly speaking. Um, and they'll, they'll do kind of their high orbit reconnaissance, and then they will descend to their final science orbit, which is also elliptical, um, with an Appleian of 12,000 kilometers. Now that gets them a period of 7.8 hours. And I did a, a little bit of quick arithmetic. So 7.8 hours means that in three orbits, that, that it takes 23 hours and four minutes to do a, a three orbits. The Martian soul, of course, is 24 minutes longer than, than an Earth day. So, you know, if the planet is rotating below you 24 minutes or 24 hours and 39 minutes and every three orbits takes 39 hours, four minutes, that means that every third orbit, the planet will have rotated about an hour and a half to the east. Um, so that's a really good, I guess, resonance, you could say, but it's a really good ratio for letting you cover the entire planet on a repeating basis, right? If you're doing, you know, whole planet science, you really don't want to be in a synchronous orbit where, you know, you're, you're in a sun synchronous orbit where you see the same place every 24 hours. That doesn't get you very much the planet. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the mariners kind of got screwed with that uh, when it visited the one that visited uh, Mercury. I think it was Mariner 10. Mm-hmm. It basically wound up in an, it was only able to view the one hemisphere because uh, mm-hmm. it didn't get into the orbit they wanted it to. It was yeah. stuck in one of these unhelpful resonances. So, I mean, it's helpful if that's what you want to do, but you know, for early missions, that's not what you want. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, let's, let's yeah. map the surface of Mercury. And it's like, oh, well, let's map what we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So before we stop talking about the orbiter and start talking about the lander element, uh, Dennis, do you want to tell us a little bit about the instrumentation on the orbiter? Yeah, yeah. So th- it's got a pretty ambitious instrument suite, but that's, I guess, to be expected from, you know, a, a mission that is sending, you know, like you said, it's, it's kind of skipping these sort of, you know, dipping your toes in the water and doing, you know, just an orbiter the first try, you know, or even, you know, a fly by then an orbiter and then so on so for the orbiter uh, they have seven primary instruments and so there's cameras on board as you can imagine there's a there's a medium resolution camera uh, and this one uh, is kind of more for this you know global mapping that you're talking about Ben and so it's got you know uh, kind of standard uh, red green and blue channels and it can do basically uh, you know maybe a hundred meters uh, resolution uh, generally, but this is going to be the kind of one to go and map out, you know, the, the, the surface of Mars. And so it'll get the topography and landscape. Um, it is going, you know, uh, uh, it'll be able to cover the whole planet, like you're saying, with that type of orbit drifting uh, an hour and a half east, you know, every uh, three orbits. And so, yeah, so that'll be uh, sort of the, the medium resolution camera, while the high resolution camera is the one that's intended for more of the, uh, you know, it's not quite as high re- high resolution as high rise, but it can do down to like, you know, uh, half a meter in 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 kind of optimal conditions when it's in panchromatic mode, uh, but it does have a color mode too. So this is going to be something that you know again like takes the really really nice beautiful high resolution images, but just like high rise you know which is over all those years only covered you know a few percent of the Martian surface. This is the one that's really going to just you know focus on what they find are the interesting features that they want to look at. And so you're not going to have a high resolution map of the entire Martian surface anytime soon, but. Uh, that's the one that'll be sending the pretty pictures to us, which is great. They've got a subsurface uh, exploration radar, the Mars subsurface exploration radar, which is uh, a dual channel 
uh, radar to penetrate below the Martian surface and uh, basically look for, you know, it could identify water ice. Uh, it could identify, you know, possibly uh, carbon dioxide ice uh, under the surface. Um, it, could, it could penetrate down to uh, 100 meters in particular if it's... Uh, uh, you know, looking at um, if it's over an icy kind of uh, region. And so, and again, remembering that this is going to be covering the entire, you know, Martian surface is what's so cool about this because there's also a subsurface radar on the, the rover, uh, which is great. But yeah, so this one operates with a, uh, a resolution of about um, uh, give or take a meter in terms of how thick uh, it can resolve things. And so this is, you know, potentially how you get things like that recent result about, you know, there being, you know, essentially uh, lakes or bodies of water uh, underneath the uh, Martian surface. And then there's also a uh, the Mars Mineralogy Spectrometer. Okay. And so this is now a, you know, a proper spectrometer rather than just, you know, a, a camera with a few different uh, uh, wavelength bands. And so it operates uh, in, in kind of two regions. It has a visible and near IR spectrometer that goes from about half to one micron. And then it has a, a, a spectrometer that extends uh, throughout the uh, the near infrared um, or through part of the near infrared from uh, one to about three and a half microns. This is always really good stuff for, you know, identifying spectral lines and seeing what kind of minerals essentially you have on the surface. And then um, there's a magnetometer on board, which is uh, interesting because this is a dedicate. This is a uh, instrument that Austrian scientists are actually contributing. There's there's a couple of collaborations with uh, European scientists on this mission, and so the magnetometer is coming from Australia. Um, this is going to be interesting for you know mapping the uh, Martian magnetic field uh, from orbit. And like you said, right, it has this very eccentric orbit, and so you know if it's coming out to you know. Uh, over 10,000 kilometers and then diving in uh, to just a, a handful of hundred of kilometers that, you know, you get kind of a pretty big dynamic range as you're kind of, you know, sweeping through like the Martian magnetosphere, right? Because, you know, it's going to have, you know, this tail and all that, all that good stuff. And then it has uh, finally two uh, uh, particle analyzers on board, because again, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's the orbiter, then it's going to be interacting. You're just going to be seeing all these charged particles coming from the sun and those charged particles interacting with the um, uh, Martian magnetosphere. And so there's uh, there's one for basically lower energy particles. And so this is the uh, ion and neutral particle analyzer. You know, we're talking about particles in the KeV range um, or even lower in some cases, up to tens of KeV. Um, and then uh, there's the energetic particle analyzer, which is for much higher, you know, tens to hundreds, you know, or actually, you know, an MeV to hundreds of MeV. So, you know, electrons, protons, uh, alpha particles, or, you know, helium nuclei coming from the sun. That one, actually, they've already turned on and uh, sent back some data. Because, you know, I mean, if this is analyzing, you know, uh, particles, you know, I mean, they're coming from the sun. So, you, you know, you can start collecting data ASAP. You had said that there is an instrument to analyze the Martian magnetosphere. I didn't know that there was enough of one to analyze, but I, I guess... I guess there is somewhat of an atmosphere or, you know, a magnetosphere on Mars. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, but yeah, that just kind of surprised me. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because, I mean, we're talking about, you know, it has it has a noise level and resolution that can get down to a hundredth of a nano Tesla. Okay, so, I don't know what that is, but it sounds small. <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, so I mean, uh, admittedly, a Tesla is a pretty big unit. I think the Earth's, I'm going to say 10 to the minus 4. Okay, so, okay, so yeah, the magnetic field of the Earth is uh, tens of micro Tesla, it looks like. Yeah, no, but I mean that that that's that's right. That's kind of a key kind of scientific point about Mars is having you know yeah. a you know much smaller mass means it kind of cooled off much quicker than you know the Earth did, at, or Venus, and thus kind of it lost its ability to generate its own magnetic field, and thus it's been having its atmosphere stripped for the last and many million uh, billion well, years. So it, its diameter was a was a major driver of it not having 
magnetosphere today, it's not that it wasn't as hot or that it it has a different chemical composition that cooled down. It was just the fact that the square the square cubed law screwed screwed Martians over. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, not so much. More like the internal heat source was lost to be able to maintain a dynamo effect. Right. So the the liquid core cooled off faster just because of the square cube law. The fact that there was more surface area. And and that's what mm-hmm. made it cool off so fast. That's what I'd heard. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. Not, and so I don't know squared cube law. What exactly you're referring to there? Oh, okay. So it's basically the idea that as the size of the planet decreases, the radius of the planet shrinks, the volume decreases by a cube of the radius, but the surface area, or, or the the right. The volume is cubed, surface area is squared. Right. And so as the, the volume shrinks by the cube of the radius, the surface area decreases by the square of the radius, which means that bigger planets have so much more surface area or so much less surface area for every unit of volume that, you know, sm- that small planets cool off faster. But that's, that's what drove the fact that we don't have, uh, a liquid core anymore is just the the size of the planet. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and uh, like you're saying, yeah. So so the less surface or the greater surface area per unit volume for a smaller world helps too. But also just the absolute size as well. You know what I mean? Like you know, mm-hmm. a, a cup of coffee, a cup of boiling water will cool mm-hmm. off sooner than a pot of boiling water will. Just wow. By so sheer like so that suggests that that there's a certain size of planet required for life as we know it that's not radiation hardened which is kind of crazy because earth is already so massive that it's almost impossible to launch anything off the surface and if you get you know much bigger than earth you know you basically don't develop crude spaceflight <laughs> those are all interesting points that i've kind of heard about i mean yeah. like i've actually heard that same you know discussion before and it yeah. is an interesting one i think also though you have to take into account that a certain amount of heat is created by radioactive decay um i don't know how much of it but quite a bit depending on the elements that make up your planet so well, that could help too yeah so th- i mean that's that's the key source of internal heat after the very early stages of the planet forming uh, there's mm-hmm. also so basically accretion Right, stuff still slamming on the surface, and then differentiation—the uh, the heavier minerals basically sinking to the inner parts of the uh, to the core, and then the lighter stuff rising—that basically all gets squared away in a small fraction of the you know at least for solar system you know terrestrial planets that all got squared away you know pretty early on. Square cubed away. Cubed away. <laughs> nice. But no, Ben. I mean, there, there's so much interesting implications though for life elsewhere because yeah. even though those super Earths you might get stranded on them more, you know what I mean? A technologically advanced civilization. But using a similar analogy, if you pick uh, an Earthling at random, you know, you're more likely to find them in China than anywhere else. And so if you just right. have more you know, so the super Earths, if life is kind of randomly distributed among terrestrial worlds, you would expect there to be more living things on super Earths than anywhere else. And so you might end up being more stranded than, <laughs> than more often stranded than not. <laughs> I mean, seriously, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Like it's just, it's, it's so crazy the the universe that we happen to, to live in. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the to the landing element. Um, the lander rover combo is nearly twice the mass of the U two lander rover combos. Um, the rover is planned, and I'm not sure if this is just the rover or both of them, but the the rover is planned for a 90 day primary mission. And uh, so we we talked about 
the fact that the orbiter is going into you know these multiple orbits that it's going to be doing before it gets to its science orbit well what's <laughs> this is really cool the lander is not um, separating from the orbiter and doing a direct landing, which is far more common, right? Most of the time when you're landing something on the surface of Mars, um, you don't go into orbit first. You just capture straight out of your interplanetary orbit or your interplanetary trajectory straight to the surface. And, and that's because the atmosphere is a fantastic way to slow yourself down. So why spend energy stabilizing into a different orbit, even if you do uh, aero capture, you just, just go straight to the surface is usually safer in so many different ways. But this rover is actually staying attached to the orbiter, um, through its orbital capture, um, which means that they're having to bring along enough fuel to, uh, to get all three elements into orbit, which is, I don't know, it just, it's cool to me. It, it, it feels nice. It feels, uh, more familiar to my Kerbal, uh, sensibilities, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the landing package has got retro rockets on board to actually deorbit it, which is not something that we tend to see. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dennis pointed out in the show notes that, um, the retro rockets and the GNC package are, are actually based on Chang'e 4. And so do you know, do you, I mean, do you happen to know off the top of your head how different, um, those systems were on Chang'e 4 versus previous Chang'e, uh, landers? I do not. It's a good question. No, it, I think it's neat though to see generally that they're kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they've got a parallel heritage, you know, of Chinese, you know, built and flown hardware. And that's one of the things that we knew, you know, years ago was that they were going to the moon to practice going to Mars. And, you know, it just makes sense um, to to take as many of those lessons as you can baked into the hardware. That's where those lessons live. Sorry, I do. I do have at least one one datum, which is that uh, Chang'e 4 and sorry, Chang'e 4 and Chang'e 3 had comparable retro rockets for the landing. There you go. That that makes that makes more sense. That that landing package is is difficult to develop. And 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 in retrospect too, right? I remember the last time or maybe not the last time, but one of the times we talked about the 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 Chang'e series are kind of paired. You know what I mean? 1 and 2 might genuinely be like the same spacecraft but with upgrades to 2 compared to 1 or you know some minor changes basically mm-hmm. 3 and 4 are another kind of couplet mm-hmm. or like okay. you know, or a couple and then 5 yeah. and 6 will be another you know couple. okay An- another upgrade version okay that makes sense mm-hmm. so um we know that the whole mission is getting there in february you know kind of orbital dynamics have determined that for us um but we don't know when the landing is expected to take place um right now it sounds Sounds like they're going to be doing it, um, quote, as early as April. Um, so uh, it sounds like any any T, no earlier than April. So the the rover itself, I believe, separate from the lander, it masses over 200 kilograms, and we believe that it will get its own name, sort of like the. U2 rover was named U2, not Chang'e. So that, that'll be fun to find out what they're going to name it. And then, uh, before we talk about the instrumentation, let's go ahead and talk about the landing site. So the mm-hmm. initial press releases had indicated that they were looking at either Chrysa Planitia or Elysium Mons. I think Elysium Mons would be a pretty cool landing site. But, um, last year they actually announced that they had kind of narrowed their focus down to two different sites. Um, both of them in Utopia Planitia, 
which makes a lot of sense because isn't Utopia Planitia a really nice place to land? It's a parking lot. Yeah, it's a, it's it's super duper flat. Um, if you're going for the first time, you know, go to one of the Planitias and Utopia mm-hmm. Planitia in particular seems like a, a really good target. So once they get there, what do we know about what they're going to be doing science-wise, Dennis? Yeah, so uh, they really, you know, again, very ambitious. <laughs> and so this, uh, the rover itself is going to be equipped with a, uh, a multi-spectral camera. So um, basically, uh, you know, an imager, right? But it'll have um, nine different uh, bands that it can look at, uh, basically from the, uh, you know, the, the blue end of the visible spectrum going a little bit into the infrared. And so that's kind of the real kind of, you know, science imager. But there's also going to be a, um, you know, a terrain uh, camera as well called the navigation and topography camera. And so this one is actually a pair of cameras to give it some stereo view. So I can imagine some nice three images at some point. But it's going to, you know, I mean... You, you can't use your, you don't want to use your science camera for just everything. You know what I mean? So right. <laughs> you, you do want to have some context of what you're looking at, where you're going, where you're roving to. And so that's what that one, you know, is for. And so analogous to, you know, the other Mars rovers, of course, you know, do this as well. Uh, it also will have its own subsurface penetrating uh, radar. Uh, which uh, has two uh, ground-penetrating radar channels. And this is going to be the first time that a rover will have um, this type of instrumentation on board. Uh, Perseverance also has it as well. And so uh, I guess, you know, whichever will be the first to land and do it, which I guess will be Perseverance, since that's going to be a straight shot uh, to the surface. But um, mm-hmm. right. still really awesome for, you know, for, you know, again, a national first, uh, first uh, Mars mission. And then another instrument it has uh, is uh, another one of these collaborations with, in this case, the French, and it's a, uh, surf- a surface composition uh, detector. So in other words, this is a, um, a laser-induced uh, breakdown spectroscopy instrument. And so, right, it Ooh. shines a laser. Oh, yeah. Shines its little uh, laser beam. Uh, it has a range of about uh, five meters for, you know, the best uh, quality data, but it can still detect things uh, potentially up to like 10 meters away. Um, mm-hmm. And so, right, the idea is you zap, you know, the rock. And then after that, the instrument also has a spectrometer on board, uh, this time going from red to, you know, further into the near infrared. It's able to basically, you know, you see kind of what uh, elements uh, are in there because, you know, after all, minerals are just, you know, repetitions of a handful of elements. And so based on the amount of, you know, silicon and oxygen and carbon present, you can get an idea of what type of uh, minerality is in there. And so that's that's a really, you know, again, for a first mission, that's a very sophisticated instrument there. And so mm-hmm. that was certainly good international collaboration to happen. Uh, the final two instruments are uh, a uh, the Mars Magnetic Field Observation Station. So, in other words, a, a surface magnetometer. Um, it seems very similar in characteristics to the orbiter, but now you've got one that's on the ground. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of differences between what you see on the surface and what you see in orbit, right? We've seen this, you know, elsewhere on Mars when it comes to, like, methane, for example, right? You're getting very different readings of methane from the rovers than you're getting from, you know, the orbiters. And so uh, it'll be good to have, you know, this magnetometer on the ground. And then finally, you know, it always is kind of the the last instrument that's often mentioned in passing, but they're, they're still mm-hmm. very important and awesome, is the uh, Mars Climate Station, which is the uh, the meteorology package or the weather package. Package. And so it's going to be able to detect or measure, you know, what the ambient temperature, pressure, wind speeds, wind direction conditions are at the, uh, as the rover, you know, roves around. And uh, you can also pick up uh, sounds uh, from the, uh, the surface 
uh, of Mars. So that's going to be that's pretty cool, cool too. Yeah. yeah. And might be interesting, you know, to maybe, you know, synergize that uh, with Insight, uh, which is uh, also kind of, you know, as, as a having a uh, seismometer, you know, uh, being able to pick up, you know, the micrometeorites hitting the surface, but as well as like, you know, winds. I feel like you could determine winds uh, also through surface vibrations as well, if mm. I remember correctly. And so those are, those are, that's the uh, ambitious, you know, uh, kind of trying to cover all the interesting science cases that you can, you know, that you kind of have on Mars. You know what I mean? You're interested in, uh, I mean, there, there, you can even make the argument for like, you know, some of these do have an astrobiological bent. Like, uh, you know, if, if you're detecting a lot of, you know, the chnops, right? Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur, then, you know, maybe you could argue that that's, you know, there might be some kind of biosignature there, you know, potentially. Probably not, but, you know, it's... It, like we said uh, when we talked about phosphine uh, a couple weeks ago, it's it's a matter of you know building up a uh, a lot of independent lines of evidence, all generally pointing towards the same thing, to give you kind of scientific confidence about that thing. Okay, so let's do a longer, short and sweet, long and sweet. Uh, what's the first one we have here, uh, Dennis? <laughs> well, first up, U.S. to monitor spacecraft around cislunar space. As the first Space Domain Awareness, or SDA, campaign to focus on cislunar space, the Air Force Research Lab has revealed the first details of its Cislunar Highway Patrol Satellite System, or CHIPS. The effort involves building an experimental satellite to do such monitoring and potentially placing it at an Earth-Moon Lagrange point, which would be a first for the U.S. military. The CHIPS program would be a first step to defining what is needed for a longer-term, sustainable cislunar SDA presence. All right, next, ThrustMe secures ESA funding. ESA's Advanced Research and Telecommunication Systems, or RTs, program is a large-scale development program similar to the CBER grants that NASA issues. This week, the iodine fuel electric propulsion company ThrustMe one of our favorites, uh, announced that they have been awarded an RT's Competitiveness and Growth Contract, or CNG. Details are currently pretty short, but we are excited to hear more in the coming weeks. And then next up, Starlink could serve as a GPS alternative. Research funded by the U.S. Army has determined that the Starlink mega constellation could be used as an alternative to GPS that would be unjammable and highly accurate. A GPS satellite has a relatively weak signal and is accurate to within a few meters. Using Starlink as part of what the U.S. Army calls calls fused LEO navigation would deliver a much stronger signal and be accurate to within 70 centimeters, though it could only be used below Starlink's 60-degree latitude coverage. The U.S. Army's interest stems from concerns that a hostile force could jam GPS signals, rendering the network useless for military operations. And also... The could is talking about the future. People already jam GPS signals. China announces work on lunar-capable crewed launch vehicle. Unveiled at the 2020 China Space Conference, the new rocket is designed to send a 25-ton spacecraft into translunar injection, with triple the liftoff mass of CNSA's current largest rocket, the Long March 5. The new launcher will feature three 5-meter cores, similar to Delta IV Heavy and Falcon Heavy, with a three-stage central core. CNSA has already flown its next-gen crewed spacecraft earlier this year, which is designed for lunar and deep space missions. But this as-yet-unnamed rocket has evidently superseded the Long March 9, a Saturn V-like launch vehicle still in the conceptual stage, as being a quicker route to getting Taikonauts to the moon. And finally, SpaceX continues their Boca Chica takeover. 
SpaceX's Boca Chica launch site has been controversial since the land was purchased. Uh, the launch site is nested within a wildlife refuge, though the FAA granted approval after their environmental impact study, uh, which disagreed with refuge managers. Well, anyway, a, a Vice article this week outlined the effects on the local human population. SpaceX has stated that they are purchasing properties to keep residents safe. Previous purchases have been renovated for use by SpaceX employees, and a job listing for a resort development manager has been posted. Uh, unfortunately, the Vice article also reports that the outstanding purchase offers have now expired, and that SpaceX warns, quote, alternative approaches may be pursued. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. Yeah, we do have an actual correction this week. So we got something wrong, and someone got it right for us. Well, we, I mean, we had an actual correction last week, and I just uh, well, sure. missed it. Uh, forgot forgot <laughs> to put into the document. Uh, this comes from Ben Hallert on Twitter. He pointed out we uh, we talked about um, Artemis three potentially doing rendezvous with Gateway before landing, and we were talking about some of the different um, mission profiles or. Po- parts of the mission profile. When we were talking, we uh, mentioned Rendezvous with Gateway. And then later on in the conversation, we had talked about, oh yeah, how Gateway is no longer part of the the critical path. Um, and it's not required for Artemis 3. And uh, I, I think it I think it got cut out of the show, or, or maybe I'm, I misremember how the conversation went. But anyway, the correction here is just a reminder that uh, Gateway is not required for Artemis 3. But even so, uh, Orion and HLS, whatever HLS ends up getting selected, um, they will rendezvous in the the near Ho orbit, the near rectilinear halo orbit, um, and that's mostly because SLS and Orion um, can't get into a lower orbit or can't get home from a lower orbit, basically. And so they they'll rendezvous in uh, in NRHO, um, go to the surface, and then go back up, whether or not uh, Gateway. Um, happens to be in that orbit. So there you go. Just a, a good little clarification. Yeah, that's a good distinction because I know that we were kind of confused on that. But now that he mentions it, it makes total sense because right. it's yeah. much easier to do that than try and get into like an orbit around the moon and then bring it back from there. Hmm. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. And we have some winners despite the fact that I didn't give the year of the clue. But uh, we have Julian Martin who somehow teamed up with Felix Fries uh, and the Greek. So I guess two or one winner in a team of two i guess is how you would yeah i'll accept teams <laughs> i think i think teams are, are are acceptable yeah this is our first team guest so team whatever you want to call yourselves uh yeah you got the correct answer so um <laughs> yeah the clue was from 2009 which i neglected to mention and it was uh here we go again i'm not going to sing it once again i would walk 1,496,225 kilometers and I would walk 1,496,225 more and I would walk 1,496,225 more just to be the satellite that walked 4,488,675 kilometers to fall down at your door. All right, that's a mouthful. Um, well put. <laughs> 
Brevity is the soul of wit, so. <laughs> oh, thank thank you. Thank you very much. All right, so this week in Spaceflight History is October 9th, 2009, and it was uh, the L-Cross impact on the lunar south pole. And L-Cross, that is the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite. So this was not too long ago, and we talked about it quite a bit before. And uh, I guess not in the context of uh, this week in Spaceflight History, but it feels like we did. But maybe that's because maybe we talked about uh, the other payload which went along for the ride, which was the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which I know that we've discussed a whole lot because it's mm. such a cool little satellite. So yeah, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was actually the primary payload. And uh, I think it was a little bit later that L-Cross was selected. So that was really just like a secondary bonus type of a payload. It was actually just selected because they had upgraded from the original Delta II launch vehicle to the more capable Atlas V. So that had mm. a that just had a higher payload capacity. So they figured, why not stick something else on there? And they had a couple of candidates and they picked L-Cross. Uh, so this was a very interesting mission, which was kind of crazy when you think about it, kind of like a Wile E. Coyote type of a mission, because <laughs> the whole idea was to impact the upper stage of, of the Atlas V, which is, you know, the Centaur upper stage, and they were just going to slam that into the lunar south pole and fly through the debris with the actual companion spacecraft. I'm sorry, the Shepard. Um, I don't know if there was a, a, a more official name than that, but uh, the Shepard part of the spacecraft was just going to fly through that, you know, eject a plume, and it was going to take some readings. Uh, so that's a very quick and fast and dirty way of, you know, getting an idea of what the composition of uh, the surface is there. You just kind of fly through just like whatever you kick up. And it pretty much worked, which is kind of surprising. <laughs> I think that's the coolest thing of all. So the actual impact site was the Cabeus Crater, which again is towards the South Pole. And this is one of those craters that is that has parts of it inside that are constantly in shadow. And so the idea was that there might be some ice there. They wanted to, you know, get a better idea. I think initially they had actually detected hydrogen, but they didn't know if it was actually in the form of water. So this was to kind of clarify that. I don't know how they detected the hydrogen initially. It it must have been through similar kind of spectroscopic analysis, but maybe, you know, they couldn't get it any more refined than that. I'm not sure. I didn't read up on that part of the previous missions uh, that had determined that. So it was meant to be the Cabeus Crater, and I think they had widened it because there was a specific part of the crater that they were targeting, and then they kind of pulled out from there because they couldn't get it quite as precise as they would have liked, and there might be a reason for that that we'll talk about shortly. But the clue with, you know, those uh, three long strings of numbers, uh, that is in reference to the orbit the L-Cross had to take in order to get to the south pole of the moon. So what it had done, once it had launched from Earth, it had swung just above the south pole, which had put it into a highly inclined orbit of 45 degrees, which is, I guess, not highly inclined, but, you know, pretty inclined. And then it had made three orbits, which took 37 days. Right. So so 37 days should tell you that this is an orbit of the Earth, not an orbit of the moon. Right. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. So this is a geocentric orbit. And also just to clarify, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was, you know, dropped off before this because otherwise he would be going along for the ride around the Earth. So, yeah, um, a 37-day period, and then after those three orbits, uh, that's when it would impact the South Pole. The center upper stage would impact first, and then shortly after that, and I've read four to six minutes, I'm not sure which is correct, but somewhere between four and six minutes later, that's when the spacecraft itself would impact the surface. And I'm not quite sure why that would be other than, you know, what else would happen with it, because I guess it can't take readings once it has hit the surface, but I guess you could monitor the ejector from that, possibly with some other satellites, uh, such as the Hubble Space Telescope, which actually did take readings. Mm. So I'm just seeing that some of the uh, the the one of the key features of LCROSS is to make sure that it didn't impact uh, the lunar reconnaissance orbiter's uh, trajectory to the moon. And, and that's kind of like a key feature of of 
a good companion mission, right? Like, Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. we've got this centaur that's already going out to the moon and it's already going to get flung away from the moon. So let's put a, you know, a shepherd spacecraft on it. And then we'll, you know, when we smash it in the moon, cause we're going to do that anyway, let's get some close up readings. And, I, and it's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. It's a pretty good idea because um, if not, you would just have that spent stage, probably just going into a heliocentric orbit. Maybe I'm not sure where it would go. Honestly, you, you could uh, fling it out around the sun, but because of the orbit they wanted to deposit LRO into um, that pretty much wasn't an option. This is, this is what, what the upper stage was going to have to do anyway. Oh, this is helpful. I found out where the the idea of uh, the anomalous like hydrogen that was being detected, or I don't know if it's anomalous or what, but there was basically a, that was Lunar Prospector. It's um, it oh, was, okay. its neutron detector was able to basically infer that there uh, might be water ice at the lunar poles, and so this is back in '98. Well, we there you basically go. Okay. go. We know that there's hydrogen. We don't know if it's attached to an oxygen, but there's hydrogen. Right, <laughs> right. And that was kind of what uh, what was confusing me because if you can take spectroscopic analysis, right, you would also pick up the oxygen, right? Right. And so that's why it was. Yeah, it was. It wasn't a. Uh, it was any. Um, uh, a spectrograph. It was a right. uh, neutron detector. Yeah. Good point. Okay, cool. So um, we have nine instruments aboard L-Cross, um, and we have one visible, two infrared, and two mid-infrared cameras. And then we have one visible and two near-infrared spectrometers. So there are your spectrometers for this mission. And then there's one photometer. So a total of nine instruments. A photometer, I'm not f- too familiar. Does this just pick up photons, which is, I guess, what it says, or, you know, I guess, like, measure it? In my non, as a non instrumentation person so my simple gut way that i always treat the difference between a photometer versus a camera is the level of sophistication a photometer just seems like a a photon counter to me they'll sometimes talk about like a a radiance photometer you know it just measures basically Mm -hmm. you know just raw how much light's coming from there as opposed to these cameras that you know they're these ccds i don't know photometers are probably not a ccd Although I'm just setting myself up to get correction for this. So we should Google this, but I feel like a photometer is a much coarser, much uh, simpler, typically. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure what the, what the actual difference is, but I know that the instrument itself was called TLP, the Total Luminescence Photometer. And so I, I think it was, it, it was like a, a way of measuring how much light was hitting the sensor rather and not than imaging it. Yeah, not not saying where the light is coming from, but but getting you know hard uh, numbers on on how many photons were were hitting the sensor. That's a good point. Yeah, it does. It won't do imaging a photometer. You you point it in the direction correct, and you'll yeah. collect light from there, but you won't form an image the way you would with a typical camera. That's the basic definition of a photometer: is that it just like measures the intensity of light, but it doesn't take imagery. So I guess if it's anything like the conventional photometer that we you know like the things that we have here on Earth, which you know you'll see camera guys using, they'll like hold it up to you know, like measure light. Oh then yeah, yeah, I guess that's what that's for. Um, it's just to measure ah, the intensity of light. The total luminescence photometer provides visible light intensity data of the crater flash event when the uh, when the centaur mm. hit it. The TLP instrument consists of two elements: the sensor electronics module, which connects, which contains the optics and sensor assembly, and signal filtering, and the digital electronics module, which converts analog signal uh, sensor signal to digital output. The TLP instrument's single element visible light detector is designed to operate at a thousand hertz and make a high fidelity record of the impact flash. So a very high frame rate single pixel camera. <laughs> kind yeah, of it's, a, it's a light curve. Huh. Yeah, you get a light yeah. curve from yeah. the mm-hmm. thing. 
So yeah, that's the instrument suite. And I guess we should talk about the anomaly. And that happened about halfway through. So this was somewhere in its, you know, three orbits of the Earth. This occurred on August 22nd. So there was a failure of or a sensor fault in the spacecraft's inertial reference unit. And that fault caused the attitude control system to switch to the star tracker, which I guess is not as accurate or perhaps we had talked about dead bands before and so maybe it's something like that because this tried to correct a lot like in order to keep this on the right trajectory and it was basically constantly firing the thrusters and it had used up 140 kilograms of the fuel, which is more than half of the fuel and it should not have done that. So they might have had some other ambitions for this particular mission, but they kind of had to scrap all that and it was concluded that they could still successfully do it, but they had to pretty much keep it to a bare minimum and that they would have just enough to actually complete the mission. But luckily they were able to restart the IRU and uh, they didn't have any further problems. I don't know much more than, you know, just it was some kind of a sensor fault. So No, your hmm. your your intuition is exactly right. Um, basically star trackers are really good for telling like absolutely what your attitude is. Um right with an an IMU and an IRU um will tell you I, I know how fast I'm moving, but like figuring out exactly where you're actually pointing gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on because it's, it's dead reckoning basically. So right. what you really want is an IRU for uh, rate data and a star tracker for absolute data. And you can mm. use the two in combination to get really high resolution and really accurate, um, calculated attitude data. Um, and so when you lose the IRU and you have to fall back to a star tracker, um, the star tracker data is noisier, right? It, it tells you if you're trying to calculate a, a, a rate out of the star tracker data, it's going to tell you, oh, you're going uh, five degrees an hour. Oh, now you're going two degrees an hour. Now you're going 10 degrees an hour. You know, and it kind of bounces back and forth. Um, and so yeah. if you haven't programmed, you know, enough debouncing into your uh, into your control program, <laughs> basically. Well, that, that's literally what it's called. It's called debouncing the signal. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, I guess debounce is probably the wrong word in this case because you normally use debouncing when you are converting analog data to digital data. Um, and so, you know, if you have a signal that goes from low voltage to high voltage, um, it, it might bounce up and down before it settles on the high voltage. Um, but in any, in any rate, some sort of filter is used to, uh, to, to take, you know, noisy data and make it good for, you know, knowing when to fire your thrusters. And apparently mm -hmm. the star trackers were either noisier than they expected or um, they didn't expect to have to rely on them for long periods of time. And so they didn't write good enough software. I don't know which it is. Um, yeah. And, and so that's where the extra thruster firings came from. Yeah. And, yeah. and your intuition was right on the money, David. It's probably just a result of this being a pretty low budget mission. So they weren't going to, you know, I mean, yeah, they probably didn't, you know, account for every single contingency because uh, this was pretty much like off the shelf parts, actually, which is another interesting uh, feature of the mission. Um, so yeah. So we had the impact of the centaur and it did excavate 350 metric tons of material, which is astounding. Uh, the 
the speed, I believe, and I didn't put it in the notes, but it was somewhere around two or just over two kilometers per second. So pretty fast speed, but 350 metric tons, I guess in uh, low lunar gravity, you can do that because it seems like, mm-hmm. like I mean, again, it, yes, it's going fast, but still that seems like a lot. And uh, yeah, it had created a 20 meter diameter crater, although that's just their best inference. They don't actually know that um, because they didn't get any high resolution imagery because they just didn't have the instruments for that. And this was something that they had thought or it was actually initially thought that you could see this from Earth. And if you had a telescope, you can go in your backyard and look up and see this giant plume. Uh, but that was not the case. Um, in fact, that was not even the case for pretty good telescopes here on Earth, um, which is kind of disappointing because, uh, I mean, I think that would be pretty cool, although I don't have a telescope or I didn't have one at the time either. Um, although I did have one once upon a time and I totally would have tried to see it. <laughs> so so what would be really visible is the f- the flash at impact. But of course, since you're putting this thing into a permanently shadowed crater, <laughs> that's yeah. a really good shorthand for a place on the moon that's not visible from Earth. So yeah, w- it would just be the plume. And it, I wonder if maybe the lighting conditions were different or the plume wasn't as dense as they might have hoped. But how cool would it be to be able to see that from Earth through, you know, a pair of binoculars or a telescope? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would have to be a much larger impact, um, which maybe one day they'll do. <laughs> I mean, I think that's kind of neat. Yeah. So because of the bandwidth limitations of transmitting the data back to Earth, they actually had to do some processing of the imagery. But they did get evidence that this was water vapor. So this that actually was uh, the correct assumption. And I forgot to mention this, but this whole mission, they say, and I don't know who they exactly is, but the whole point was to find out if there was water and then, if so, possibly establish a base on the South Pole. Now, I don't know how seriously that is to be taken because that seems kind of out there, but maybe I'm wrong because I think that there has been talk now, right? Like we're talking about a base at the South Pole, so perhaps this is actually... It's something that we'll do eventually, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think anybody uh, yes, who so. was saying anything more than, you know, maybe I, I think they're probably sensationalizing when when they said what you read, David, mm-hmm. but maybe they, mm-hmm. what they should have said was identify a potential base for a future yeah. base on the moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the conclusion initially after the mission was that they were looking at somewhere around 1% water ice in the lunar regolith. Later analysis had actually refined that figure to more or less 5.6%. And it was like something like an error bar of like 2%, which is pretty impressive, actually. I wouldn't have thought it was that much because I had heard people say that, in fact, I think it was Bob Zuber and he has his own motivated reasons, but he was saying that you would have to or that it would be better to mine concrete for water than, you know, the lunar regolith. And that was his case for going to Mars instead because, you know, that's always his motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, 5.6% seems kind of like a lot, really. So, I mean, that's in a crater. That's not on other parts of the lunar surface. But still, that's pretty good. Yeah, and, and again, I think it's, you know, that water, right, that might be mm-hmm. locked up. In, I mean, it's not, it's not like you go there and if you, you know, took a scoop of the mm. lunar regolith, 5.6% of that scoop is just going to be like water ice, kind of like shaved ice lying around. Right, yeah, right, right. Shaved <laughs> ice. <laughs> That's the thing that everyone kind of neglects to mention when it comes to NC2, like, you know, just that kind of, like, how do you get it out? The problems with moon dust are pretty bad in the first place. Now you're going to try to get water out of it. I don't know. That seems, I don't know what kind of machinery you need to do that. Although it might not be that hard because, you know, it's water and it can evaporate and do whatever it's going to do. But I don't know. I just yeah. The, the simplest ISRU applications are just dig up a bunch of dirt, heat it up, and then yeah. you know basically you're basically distilling <laughs> the yeah, regolith. Just- 
Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so that is your L-Cross mission, the low-budget companion to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So real quick, let me talk about the clue for this week. Uh, I'll put in the show notes a, a link to a YouTube video that I found really interesting. It was from uh, Matt Parker uh, on, on YouTube. Uh, this is something that I learned uh, the week uh, the week before last. Did you guys know that there is no mathematical formula to allow you to derive the perimeter of an ellipse? I did not know that. No. So, like, it, it's it's so weird because, like, a circle it's pi r squared, right? That's or that's the area of the circumference is two pi r. That that's really easy. And, and you go well, an ellipse is just you know it's a it's a smeared out circle, right? It should there should it should just be like the semi major axis times pi or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it looks the same, but it has an e in there, right? It should be the only difference. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it just it it's not a thing that exists. So so like if a if a spacecraft is in an orbit that's not perfectly circular, the only way that we know the distance that it's traveled is is literally to estimate it. And there are some really cool equations that can um estimate the circumference of a uh, uh, of an ellipse, but it just Really? That doesn't seem right. That really I know. like you said. Mm. I know. Really, and I you know what? I mean, it, yeah, I mean I haven't watched the video yeah, but just looking at Wikipedia, I could see... I swear to God, Kepler figured that out. Oh, you, you can calculate it. There just isn't a closed form that you can just express it as, as neat as, you know, 2 oh, pi r. All right. Yeah, that still doesn't seem right. Okay. It's an well, integral, right. essentially. Well, a- actually, <laughs> a- actually, Kepler thought that he... Uh, Kepler estimated it, and he thought that his estimation was close as makes no difference, but it was it was actually incorrect. And from what I understand, it actually caused some issues with later calculations that he did because he assumed it was it, it was accurate, but it actually turns out it was just an estimate. Wow. <laughs> so that'll be in the show notes. But um, when when I was looking for a clue for Elcross, I go, okay, so we're orbiting the Earth three times before we hit the Moon. Uh, how how long of a distance is that? And I was just already primed to know that that, you know, to, to latch onto the fact that, you know, it's not something that you can specifically calc, you know, you can't, you can't calculate it down to the, you know, to the actual number you have to get mm-hmm. close. And, and so I thought it was kind of silly to take uh, an estimate of the perimeter <laughs> or the, uh, the circumference of that, uh, of that ellipse and, uh, walk that distance three times. So yeah, with that said, what is the clue for next week? And you get a nice, easy, short one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry, I, I offered to read it last week. All right. The clue is next week in 1976, joining the Polar Bear Club. And that, and that's club with an L, not cub, C-U-B, C-L-U-B, the Polar Bear Club. Yeah, joining the Polar Bear Club. If you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay. All right. So let's move on then to upcoming space flight events. We just got one launch and that's all, but uh, a pretty cool one. So our only launch of the week is uh, on October 14th. It's a, it's a Soyuz that'll be carrying ISS 63S, aka MS-17. And so uh, this will be taking uh, some fresh crew up there. We've got uh, Sergei Rizhikov, uh, Sergei Kudzverchkov, and Kate Rubens uh, returning to uh, the station. And so um, keep an eye out for that again on October 14th at 0545 UTC or for East Coast that's uh, 1.45 a.m. So keep in mind uh, for people, you know, on the West Coast, that is going to be on the 13th. And so the capsule is going to stay at the station for about six months. Uh, 
and um, the Soyuz uh, itself will be flying in the, the 2.1A configuration. And we will talk about the rendezvous and docking coverage on NASA TV next week because this is already after next week's show. But in any event, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Let's go ahead and deorbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com. All right, that is all. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you soon.